I am Solas Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on September 19th, 2023. Episode 110. The Race of 2024. Who's running, what are they running on, and what really matters? In this corner, for the grand old party, we so far have former President Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former Governor of South Carolina and former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, tech businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, former Vice President Mike Pence, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, former Governor of Arkansas Asa Hutchinson, radio talk show host Larry Elder, Michigan businessman Perry Johnson, and former representative from Texas Will Hurd. Most of these candidates, with the glaring exception of former President Trump, recently participated in the first Republican presidential debate, and some other candidates have qualified for the next one. The focus of that debate was on various topics, including abortion, the events of January 6, 2021, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, and federal spending. And three other possible Republicans may still enter the race, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, and former Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney. And in the other corner, for the Democratic Party, we have, at this point, Joseph Biden and possibly Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Despite the obvious physical and mental frailty of President Biden, the lack of success of his administration on many fronts, from border control to issues involving North Korea, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, and the economy, he remains the only real candidate on the party's radar. But with more attention being given in recent days to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and whether others may ultimately still enter the race, makes things a bit unclear. The Democratic Party seems hell-bent on standing behind President Biden if he actually does run for re-election, which he has said he is, while at the same time uneasy about that prospect. It is early in the race for president, but it is not that early. The election is only a little over a year away, and though I wish campaigns didn't last years, today's elected officials are in a constant state of campaign mode. And as of today, that campaign is shaping up to be one focused on two things, Donald Trump 
and a lot of issues that aren't really the federal government's business in the first place. Before I get too deep into discussing the candidates and what I view as some of the real issues, it's important to acknowledge that even where the federal government has no real authority on a particular topic, our president still does play the role of leader, meaning that his opinions on issues matter even if his position does not, or should not, have any involvement in those issues. So his or her thoughts on issues that are not his to decide if elected can still be relevant to whether a voter wishes to cast a vote his way. And it's still important to focus on electing someone who can actually do the job, as outlined in the U.S. Constitution, and who does not appear likely to wish to or intend to usurp authority not granted to him. The President's authority is set out in Article 2 of the United States Constitution. The key provisions of that article provide the following. The executive power shall be vested in a President of the United States of America. The President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. And he shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. That article continues, including in the President's authority the right to make treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate, to appoint various officials, also often with the advice and consent of the Senate, including appointment of justices of the Supreme Court. In general, it is more straightforward to understand the President's role when it comes to international relations and foreign policy, though there are still disputes when the President's actions in that arena require involvement by one or both houses of Congress. In other words, the President is given sort of general areas of authority, but he shares much of it with the other political branch. And in the post-9-11 era, There were certainly legitimate concerns and continue to be that overly broad authority has either been granted to the president via legislation or usurped by him under the guise of protecting us from the next terrorist attack. But it is in the fact that, quote, the executive power shall be vested in the president that we now face an office that looks little like the executives known to our founders and envisioned as the limited role within our borders the president was intended to fulfill. Be reminded that the federal government was to be three co-equal branches of government. In today's America, however, we have three overly powerful branches of government that are ever seeking to gather more power within their respective purviews. Since this episode is focusing on the office of president and the upcoming election for that office, let's look at all the policy areas about which today's president and the current presidential candidates claim to want to act. President Biden continues to focus on climate change issues, the economy, and expanding health care. He also continues to focus on large-scale funding of Ukraine's efforts in the conflict with Russia and forgiveness of student loans. Current Republican candidates claim to have plans to focus on controlling the border and international trade, Donald Trump, preventing the kinds of missteps and internal issues with agencies like the FDA and NIH, particularly when facing nationwide crises like a pandemic, DeSantis, Protecting election integrity, protecting the unborn, and reforming the United Nations, Haley. Building the wall, funding police, and defending freedom, Scott. Reviving America's identity, economic growth, independence from China, and dismantling the federal bureaucracy, Vivek Ramaswamy. Confronting inflation, expanding energy resources, protecting federalism and protecting American security, workers, and values via specific executive actions, Pence, and more. These are the issues highlighted on the candidates' own web pages or in their public appearances. A deeper dive into those issues and how the Republican candidates view their own roles should America elect one of them president seems all too focused on whether the candidate is more or less like Donald Trump. 
but in large part, at least when speaking on their plans in office, they seem to be focusing on mostly legitimate federal issues and seem mostly to be in agreement. Perhaps the larger issue is that American voters have been all too well trained and led at this point to want their president to fix all things, no matter whether he or she has the constitutional authority even to try. Since I have repeatedly addressed the federal government's trampling of the Constitution by usurping authority we never granted it, I will not continuously repeat that concern here, but will do my best to highlight some of what you might want to know about the current candidates for the nation's highest office. The elephant in the room, in every room in which the presidential election is being discussed, is Donald Trump. As former president of the United States, what a second Trump administration may look like should be easier for voters to predict, or so it would be for any other candidate. The issues that surround Donald Trump, however, are so multifaceted and different than we've experienced through history that it's hard to predict anything. In my opinion, the actual policy actions taken in the first Trump administration were primarily positive and on the right track. What is less predictable is how much of Donald Trump's decision-making is focused on what benefits him personally the most or gives him the most power and credit, rather than being based on any knowledgeable or knowable guiding principles or philosophies. In other words, is Donald Trump a small government, free market, national security president, or do the policies that tend to lean that way just fit into Donald Trump's own personal agenda, which is focused more on his own ego and fame and less on getting good results for the nation? I honestly at this point cannot answer that question. His bombastic style is certainly what appeals to many, but as time has gone on and more targets have been placed on his back by those from both parties, his reactions are becoming more focused on himself than his country. That said, assuming he does have some foundational principles that guide his decisions, the other hurdle to overcome is how much of a second Trump administration would be embroiled with distractions— criminal prosecutions, another impeachment, social media wars, and the like. And perhaps just as difficult to gauge is whether a candidate Trump could garner enough Republican support, not just for the party's nomination, but for a general election win. Though his poll numbers still look good despite all the circulating scandal and efforts to keep him out of politics, the American voter is unpredictable, and the question must be whether he has any real chance of winning a general election, and if not, what other candidates can broker support among both his supporters and those who have sworn off any Trump second term themselves to have any chance at a general election victory. And most importantly, if another person does win, will they be as willing to shake up D.C. in a way that is needed and with the lack of regard of a Donald Trump to oppositions to big changes just because that's the way things are always done in Washington? Because the one thing that is clear is that many, many voters are sick and tired of how things are done there. And some of the news on Trump's second run for the White House is looking up for the Trump campaign, with General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, recently making it clear that President Trump never ordered him to do anything unlawful with the military following the 2020 election. And Trump's poll numbers consistently improve in a head-to-head against President Biden. Because Donald Trump remains a key player in how all of this will unfold, including the possibility of a third-party run if he doesn't get the Republican Party's nomination, Perhaps the candidate to start any discussion as to alternatives is, a little shockingly, Vivek Ramaswamy. Where Governor Ron DeSantis was once viewed as the next Trump, but with more civility, Vivek is packaging himself as a Donald Trump on policy, with similar populist appeal and no history of politics. Should the criminal prosecutions or other issues affect voters' willingness to vote for Donald Trump in the primaries, 
those otherwise Trump supporters may find appeal in Ramaswamy's campaign. The problem with his campaign, seemingly, is going to be a lack of money and a lack of GOP insider support. Founder of both an investment firm and a pharmaceutical company, with all the pros and cons that come with that field these days, Vivek Ramaswamy has a similar immigrant success story for his family as that of Nikki Haley. Born and raised in Ohio by Indian immigrant parents, his experience spans from the sciences to finance with a history of being outspoken about his libertarian views. His campaign focus is on the culture war, with messaging clearly identifying the key issues for America as reclaiming the American identity from those who seek to harm it through what he calls, quote, new secular religions like covidism, climatism, and gender ideology, end quote. His key policy ideas target government interference in the name of champion, championing these causes, a true reflection back to his outspoken libertarian days as a student at Harvard University. Whether his lack of political experience will help him rise in the ranks or lead to campaign missteps is yet to be seen, but he is well-spoken and clear in his ideas. And that leads us to Ron DeSantis, who was once the darling of the party and now has fallen out of favor for reasons I actually don't really understand, but have to appreciate when determining what options actually provide a chance at riding the direction of the country, literally and figuratively. Another well-spoken and generally likable, although there are those who take issue with a lot of his policy positions, DeSantis as a candidate has none of the apparent egotism of a Donald Trump, and he boasts experience in both the military and in politics with a successful record in Florida on a lot of issues that impact our lives and have done so a lot in recent years, including the pandemic response and the influx of gender ideology into our schools. Whether his successes translate to successful politics on a national stage is yet to be seen, and so far is proving to be an issue for his campaign. A former U.S. congressman and now governor, he at least has seen the inner workings of the D.C. machine and should understand better than some how to tackle the continuing issues that face the ever-growing bureaucracy. But that experience both helps and hurts. Recall that part of Trump's appeal is the outsider, the non-D.C. operative. Both from South Carolina, former governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley and current Senator Tim Scott are also both seeking to hold the office of president. Their backgrounds and experience are different. But interesting. Interestingly, both candidates have records upon which voters can make decisions. Though I tend to have an automatic aversion to lifelong politicians, it cannot be doubted that some political experience can be very valuable. Not always, but it can be. Though it may not be within his personality, had Donald Trump simply understood that you can speak clearly and directly without name-calling, or unnecessary rudeness, along the lines of a Ronald Reagan, and still make the same hard decisions and get the same things done, he would have been a harder target for the Democrats through his administration. In other words, the straight talk that garnered him so much support among many likely could have been just as successful, without as many pitfalls, if it had just taken an ever-so-slightly different tone and not been communicated almost entirely through Twitter. It is here, though, where evaluation of actual career politicians makes many voters leery. Where Donald Trump is a what-you-see-is-what-you-get candidate, smoother-talking candidates with political experience are sometimes perceived as suspect. Tim Scott and Nikki Haley may have that problem. And it is here where Nikki Haley, an incredibly successful governor for South Carolina, has fallen out of favor with some in her own party and state. And it is here where Tim Scott has actually gained traction, but in a way that makes him almost too willing to be honest and kind in all but the most egregious situations. Take recent attacks on him for his status as a single middle-aged man, suggesting that he must most assuredly be gay. 
First, it is ridiculous that the party that claims to seek full acceptance of all sexual lifestyles would then target a man they claim, whether honestly or not, may engage in one of those lifestyles. But the other troubling aspect is that Senator Scott would even believe it necessary to respond to such speculation at all. He has a proven record as a public servant, and his goal now is to tell voters what he would do if elevated to the office of president, without letting the opposing party distract that message. Those kinds of missteps may be proof that he's not quite ready for the national stage. Nikki Haley, like Vivek Ramaswamy, is the child of immigrant parents from India. Her strength lies in her ability to be professional and calm, and in having a wide range of experience, from serving in an executive capacity as governor to her international relations and foreign policy experience at the UN, where she remained a stalwart supporter of America's interests over the interests of any global community. With a degree in accounting and experience as a bookkeeper in her family's small business, she comes with different but equally valuable financial experience to candidates like Ramaswamy. Tim Scott is a pull-himself-up-by-the-bootstraps hard worker who originally struggled in school while essentially being raised by a single mother following his parents' divorce. A successful insurance agent, Scott has prided himself on providing for the mother who worked so hard for him and in working his way up the political ladder, beginning as a council member for Charleston County, South Carolina, to now serving as the junior U.S. senator from that state. Scott's politics are consistently conservative, but without the executive experiences of a DeSantis or Haley. Though there are no set list of positions one should hold before becoming president, uh, Exhibit 1, Donald Trump, service in a position like state governor does provide more insight into how the individual may operate in terms of policy decisions and methods, if in that same type of position within the federal government. It is part of why I've always believed, regardless whether I agreed with a particular president's policies, that former governors have generally far exceeded those who held offices such as senator or representative in performance as president. Aside from whether the policies were good or bad, just compare the leadership styles and ability to make decisions of Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton to those of Barack Obama or even George H.W. Bush. I know there are people who will disagree with this assessment, but I stand by it. Executive experience is a whole hell of a lot more valuable than political experience in general. Former Senator and Vice President Mike Pence is not necessarily a surprise entrance into the 2024 presidential race, and he brings both executive and congressional experience. But his declaring as a candidate has most certainly removed him from the bottom of the ticket should we see another Trump nomination. Pence's record is expansive, having served as a U.S. representative, governor of Indiana, and vice president. That experience could be both a pro and a con, and his turn away from President Trump has likely lost him an element of support he may have been able to retain had he done all he could to avoid discussing Donald Trump at all. But Pence has not avoided that discussion and has been highly critical and becoming more so in recent days. It is in some ways understandable. If he truly seeks this higher office, he wants to distance himself from the controversial man who is Donald Trump. But without some equally exciting reason to support his candidacy, it is likely most voters who support Trump now view him as a traitor, and those who do not remain skeptical given his service in the Trump administration. But Pence's experience does appear to help him focus on some key issues confronting the nation, including the continuing economic threat posed by China. The remaining candidates may surge as the campaign trudges on, and new ones may announce, but they have not yet gained much traction. Often, this second tier of candidates provides a pool of possible vice presidential nominees, so familiarizing yourself with each of them is certainly a benefit. In summary, as far as I can tell, Chris Christie is running more against Trump than for himself, despite he once had a glowing record as governor of New Jersey. Larry Elder has good ideas, but not much experience, and, and not the pizzazz that now appears required by national politics. 
Doug Burgum, an interesting background in the tech industry and a decent record as governor of North Dakota, but not much name recognition or funding base, sadly a required element of today's campaigns. Asa Hutchinson and Will Hurd have decent records in their respective political offices, but aren't likely dynamic enough to capture a diverse national backing. And Perry Johnson's background as a successful businessman is rightfully or wrongfully likely to be overshadowed by other non-politician businessmen like Trump and Vivek. For many, this cycle's Republican primary could decide the direction of the country, meaning that questions about valid conservative credentials paired with a candidate's ability to win the general election will be prevalent as the campaign season heats up. But it's not just the Republican field that is full of question marks. What will actually happen with the Democratic candidate for 2024? President Biden intends to run for re-election. But with historically low poll numbers and no clear campaign message, along with his advancing age and public fumblings, both mental and physical, will he really be the Democratic Party's candidate come next November? That is anyone's guess. A lot may come down to whether he experiences any further further obvious declines in health, or how much backbone his party has to support any efforts to support and nominate a more viable and energetic candidate. A recent news story posted on, of all places, MSN.com, highlights the difficult road ahead for a 2024 Biden-Harris campaign. Entitled, To Win Re-Election, Biden is going to have to actually have to run on something, posted earlier this month, the article highlights all the issues facing an attempted second Biden term in office. The first couple paragraphs summarize the issue. Joe Biden and the Democrats are running for re-election next year. In a campaign season on whose outcome, Biden says, the future of American democracy depends. So what are they running on? Nothing so far, it seems. Don't just take it from me. The president's campaign launch commercial vowed to, quote, finish the job without explaining what that job was or what he intended to do to finish it. Based on conversations with his advisors, the Associated Press reported in April that the Biden 2024 message will be largely indistinguishable from his rhetoric over the six months prior and will see him play up accomplishments from his first two years, draw a sharp contrast with Republican policies he deems extreme, and brush off worries about his age. We got a preview of this in his June speech in Chicago, where Biden pointed to positive macroeconomic indicators to make the case that Biden, Biden, I can never say this, Bidenomics is working, touted the legislation he'd already signed into law, boasted about his pro-union bona fides, and hit Republicans for wanting to bring back failed trickle-down economics. The, the article goes on. The problem is, Americans aren't that, Americans aren't that thrilled with Biden's pre- presidency or his economy. The president's approval rating has been in near-historic doldrums for well over a year now. Even Democratic voters don't want him to run again and tell pollsters they're unenthused about his steering of the economy, particularly those who tend to be younger, less wealthy, and Black or Latino. Another recent poll found that as Biden prepares to rest his re-election chances on his strong record of accomplishments, only 40% of registered voters actually think he actually has that record, 11 points fewer than for Donald Trump, his likely opponent. Does that mean that if Biden is the candidate, the Democrats lose the White House? Of course not, though it it should. Uh, What it does mean is that President Biden, despite the normal advantage of being the incumbent, may be the weakest candidate that party could nominate. The Democrats could bet on the division among Republicans about Donald Trump. After all, that is likely what shifted some right-of-center voters to support Biden in 2020 may still play in 2024. But things are different today. The constant focus by the left on Donald Trump since he left office may hurt or help candidate Trump 
and is a risky strategy. In addition, unlike in 2020, where many institutional Republicans joined in a never-Trump effort, putting support and money into Biden's campaign, because they believed that career politician was a known entity and was predictable. President Biden's history of dishonesty and self-serving political actions, and what he's actually done in office, or not done, and the fact that his age and failing physical and mental health make him more influenced by unknown pressures within the White House, who have clearly set a far-left agenda, so far left to the extreme that the administration is on the wrong side of almost every cultural issue, if not every, and is imposing economic policies that go against the nation's history of free markets. Will this experience make some of these never-Trumpers, Biden-supporting Republicans, rethink their support? Or will that depend on whether the person on the top of the other ticket is Donald Trump or someone else? That may be the most important question, and one that must go hand-in-hand with what votes the Republicans lose if Trump is the nominee, and what votes they lose if he is not. It is almost as if the world of presidential politics is one of a teeter-totter, where nomination of one candidate loses votes of one group within the party, but gains votes of another, and selection of a different candidate does just the opposite. How that all shakes out in the general election is something pollsters will likely incorrectly predict, as they so often do, but something the nation's voters need to begin considering. For it's important, of course, to pick the candidate with whom you think most aligns with your beliefs about this nation and where it should head. It is also true that you should not be bullied into not supporting a candidate because of the targets placed on that candidate by others. But what must be considered is what truly lies in the future of the United States and what direction, even if it doesn't take as big a steps that way, do we want to be moving come January 2025. As always, thank you for listening. It is true that neither a Donald Trump presidency nor the presidency of Joseph Biden caused immediate American collapse, as was claimed by the opponents of each of these candidates. But what has happened as candidates become more extreme and less civil is that the nation has suffered. Whether it is best resurrected to its past glory by the straight talk of a return of Donald Trump to the White House, or a bumbling second Biden term, or looking towards someone new to lead us hopefully on a path of rebirth of the American dream and our founding principles, is not an easy question to answer. I have my own preferences, but they are not yet written in stone. All I ask of voters as the 2024 election gets more and more of our attention is that you consider each candidate, not solely on charisma, not solely on personal beliefs, though obviously you want one who is generally in alignment with your own, but on which candidate has the full package to direct the nation looking both to internal issues and foreign relations? Who has the intellect, the right ideas and policies, the willingness to do what is prudent to institute those policies? Who will value and abide by the U.S. Constitution and take all steps to ensure our other officials do the same? And will take a good, long, hard look at the executive branch he or she will lead to find ways to fix the institutional issues that clearly plague our overgrown bureaucracy? It may be that Donald Trump just needs a few more years to make progress draining the swamp, or it may be that a Trump nomination gives us four more years of a weak and failing Joseph Biden, meaning a Trump nomination loses the White House. That is unclear, and where neither of these frontrunners can lead us for more than four more years, it may be that the real question to be asked is who should be on the bottom of the ticket, ready to step in if needed ready to propel the nation forward on the right course, not today, but in four more years or eight more years. I rarely vote based on what might happen after that candidate's term is over. 
but with age and term limits both limiting factors for today's frontrunners, the future must be considered in a more long-term way, and in a way that I hope voters see as one that puts the kibosh on the harmful pushes from the far left to turn our society into one of identity politics, overregulated economic activity, and weak national security, and returns us to the American principles that have made this nation exceptional and unique in history. The party politics we will witness through primary season will not be pretty, and it seems the appropriate time once again to be reminded of Alexis de Tocqueville's early recognition of the problem with political parties in America. There are many men of principle in both parties in America, but there is no party of principle. Nothing has been proven this sentiment to be more correct than watching the two parties maneuver and manipulate which candidates get party support during the nomination process. Next episode, I will discuss some of the most absurd news stories I've come across recently as a way of identifying a lot of what is wrong with today's society. To be sure, all times in history are full of good and bad, good and bad people, good and bad governments, good and bad economic cycles, and so on. But in today's world of competing ideas, that as individuals we can be and think whatever we want without repercussion, unless what we want to be or think is not in line with one side of the political debate— What appears damaged the most is any understanding that to build good and solid communities, we must first take personal responsibility for our own actions, inactions, and the results that stem from them. Decisions and actions have consequences. Today's poor decisions are likely to have detrimental future consequences for those involved and for society as a whole, unless we can rewrite this ship. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth. Defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can share the podcast with just one other person, we can continue to further its purpose, to encourage real discourse in society about the state of our nation. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to the podcast page on Spotify and clicking the Support This Podcast button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solas Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales' Scepter. Copyright 2023.